0: Friends and family, hear the word of the Lord this morning. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who should stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing now upon this time so that we would hear and understand more faithfully as all you direct. Through your word we pray in Christ's name, amen. If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, we are going to work our way through this psalm. The young man had been sent to uh, the university by his father in order to study for, become a lawyer. It wasn't really his idea, it was more the father's idea. The father had the intention, he was a rather overbearing man, and he had the goal that his father or that his son would not suffer or have the hardship that he had in life, but would have rather a smoother life, a a life of of wealth and, and status, and therefore he wanted him to become a lawyer. Uh, unfortunately one day when the young man was on his way home he got caught in a thunderstorm a uh, very violent uh, lightning flashing all around him etc threw him off so badly that he did what a lot of us do whenever we come into a situation where we're filled with fear and panic he made a bargain with God and the young man said Lord if you save me from this terrible experience that I'm undergoing right now I promise I will go into the ministry and serve you well at the end of the thunderstorm the guy was still alive and much to his father's chagrin and to some extent his open hostility the young man fulfilled his vow and left the university studying to be a lawyer and instead went into the ministry now he hadn't really been he'd been raised in a church going family but it wasn't necessarily something that was deep into his soul so as he was studying for the ministry and then beginning to practice the ministry he realized more and more how inadequate he was for the task. He realized as he studied more and as he learned more about his Lord how deeply sinful he was, how broken he was on the inside, and how that had such a negative effect on his desires and interest in doing ministry and fulfilling the call that God had given to him. He was overcome by his own brokenness, by his own sinfulness, and so consequently he developed a habit that he would spend hours every day in confession. He would spend hours repenting of his sin. And then he would spend hours repenting of the fact that he wasn't sincere enough when he was repenting of his sin. And then he spent hours feeling guilty and repenting of the guilt that he felt because he wasn't sincere enough when he was repenting of his sin. And so you have this horrid, uh, Uh, cycle this depression that he would fall into the despair that this young man would fall into because he was well aware of the brokenness of his sin this pattern would have continued and you could easily imagine it continuing on and ultimately swallowing this man's life if it were not eventually that he was directed to turn his eyes away from himself and to his lord He finally turned his eyes away from looking within where he saw all was brokenness and sin and depravity and that which was ungodly, his failure failure to live the kind of life that he knew God was calling him to. When he finally turned away and looked to the cross, he finally found relief from the depression in which he experienced there. Not because, incidentally, he looked at the cross and found a God who didn't really care if he lived his life, or encouraged him to live his life however he wanted to live, or that he was not just not that important, the sin that the guy was struggling with wasn't that big of a deal, and don't have to stress it that much, not at all. When he looked at the cross, he saw God who was incredibly concerned about his sin, that he was well aware of his brokenness and his depravity, and he took it incredibly seriously, so seriously that he sent his own son to die on the cross. It was the forgiveness that he found at the cross that freed him from the overwhelming guilt and burden of sin. It was not a, a passive God who couldn't care less how he lived his life, or who encouraged him to live however he wanted to live, or just ignore the things that God says because he loves him so much, No, what he found was a God that loved him so much that he took very seriously how he was supposed to live his life and took very seriously his sin, so seriously that it allowed him to offer forgiveness in this marvelous way. We are looking at the Psalms this summer, and what we're studying is how it is that we can appreciate and how we can engage in the same way that the psalmist engaged. So each one of the psalms that we're looking at kind of finds the psalmist in a different situation. And then we are looking to see how it is that the psalmist leaned into the Lord, how it is that the psalmist embraced the things of the Lord and in such a way was turned into a man of greater, of greater faith. For what I suspect is that for most of us, we're going to most of the time appreciate what the psalm is talking about. Most of us are going to appreciate times of great joy and, 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 and overwhelming elation when we come into the presence of God. And when we read the psalms that talk about the joy of being in God's presence, Most of us are going to be able to appreciate or sympathize or come up with a scenario where that's been our experience as well. Most of us are going to be able to appreciate those times where the psalmist is talking about the difficulties and the sufferings and the pain and the brokenness of life, and we're going to be able to sympathize and appreciate his situation because we can see parallels in our own situation. When the psalmist is overcome with joy and and thanksgiving to God when he is praising God and thanking him for all the riches that the Lord has given to him, again, most of us are going to be able to come up with some type of a parallel in our own lives and realize that we too share in those situations. Most of us, most of the time, will appreciate the situation the psalmist finds them in. If you are a believer in this room right now, then all of us find ourselves in the situation that the psalmist is in, in Psalm 130. Perhaps you're not a person that finds themselves in periods of great suffering or great joy or great thanksgiving or great sorrow or sadness, but all of us, if you are following the Lord Jesus Christ, have walked the path of Psalm 130. Perhaps not as explicitly as the psalmist, but every single one of us follows this path. Therefore, we're looking at Psalm 130 today to see how it is that the psalmist leaned into the Lord's salvation, because if you are a follower here in this room, you too have and need to continue to lean into the Lord's salvation. How do we rely? How do we trust? How do we experience in a greater sense the salvation of our Lord that is portrayed in Psalm 130? Because... It absolutely is your story. Now, I realize that not everybody's story looks the same. It's the beauty of God's work in our lives. That his, the testimony, the, the pathways that he brings us into himself are varied and different. And, and each one of us experienced something different. And that's a beautiful, glorious thing. But there are parallels. There are things that hold it together. And Psalm 130 does a great job of identifying those basic parallels. We're going to look at four different things here. In the four different stanzas, each stanza being two verses, so every two verses is a different stanza that highlights a different character of leaning into God's salvation. Uh, to help you remember them, they're on the back of your bulletin. So if you have your bulletin, you want to flip onto the back side. There, you'll see under the sermon notes the idea that we all experience a sorrow for sin, we all experience a forgiveness, and the fear of the Lord. We all experience a waiting and a watching, and then we are all called to tell of our testimony the sorrow for sin, the forgiveness and fear, the waiting and the watching, and the telling of our testimony. The psalmist begins in verse one, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, and the cry there is, a, is an emotional, it's filled with angst, it's filled with uh, with passion here. This is not something I've mentioned before that in my prayer life and in my prayer life for myself, certainly for my prayer life for you, there are certain times where I can really go to the Lord and seek his blessing and seek his grace for you, and trust me, whenever I pray for you, I am earnestly doing that, but I rarely want to say that I'm pleading with God or crying out to him uh, just because that's not my emotional, I want to, I want to be that kind of a person. But here you see this with the psalmist. He's crying out to the Lord. I need you to, to see this with all the passion and the enthusiasm that it happens. Why? Because he's in the depths. Now, in our current society, when you hear that, I'm in the depths or I'm, I'm in the deeps or life is blue for me right now often what we mean is that uh, we're emotionally sad or sorrowful because of the external circumstances around us. Something terrible is happening around us. I'm fighting with my family. My job's not going really great. I'm sad about something or other. And and therefore, we feel blue and we feel in the depths. We're down. We feel down about something. And so from uh, the the first glance, this line kind of says, you know, out of the depths because I'm so emotionally wrapped up and I'm sorrowful about this, I cry out to the Lord, etc., etc. I think that misses, I I know that misses what the psalmist is dealing with here. The psalmist is not dealing with suffering. The psalmist is not dealing with outside situations that are burdening him. He is dealing with the sorrow of his own sin. You can see this most clearly in verse 2, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's yearning, he's crying out to the Lord. He's in the depths because of the great sorrow of sin, of his own sin, of his own brokenness. He has looked within and he realizes that he is not the man of God that God has called him to be, that he's not following the pathway that he needs to be, that his heart is not pure and yearning only for the Lord, that he does not passionately yearn for the Lord. Remember how we looked at verse uh, of Psalm 1 earlier the way of righteousness. Here the psalmist looks at himself and realizes that he falls far short and that shortness doesn't make him callous. It doesn't mean, well, I just have to ignore these things or, well, everybody kind of struggles with this so I don't have to really worry about it or he's not looking for other people to buck him up. Oh, it's not that bad. Everybody kind of struggles with, don't overstress this about yourself. You're, you're putting too much weight upon this. No, the psalmist does exactly what the scriptures call every Christian to do. He hates his sin. He hates it. And he feels this great sorrow for sin. Now what the psalmist does though in this spot, which we need to be encouraging one another to do. We cannot, uh, the, the culture around us and the culture in this building seeks to minimize Sin, to call it a different name, to say, oh, it's just a little failing, or it's just not what it should be, or it's okay, don't make such a big deal about it, everyone does it, and the scripture says that's never the way to handle our sin. The way to handle our sin is to acknowledge it for what it truly is. The confession that Brendan has led us in, the confession that Jerry walked us through is built exactly on that. It is not hiding from our sin. It is not covering it over. It's not acting like it's not an influence in our lives. It is straightforward, acknowledging it as is. But as believers, what we do with one another then is say, if you are so sorrowful over your sin, if that first stanza here has that impact in your life, then move to the second stanza. Verses three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, the word iniquities there is is used 200 times, more than 200 times in the Old Testament, it is the standard word for sin, for human depravity. This is Cain and Abel. This is David at his worst. This is the prophets in all of their failing. This is Israel in its ungodliness This is you and I. And the psalmist says, if you, O Lord, marked iniquities, who could stand? And of course the point is, nobody could. If you kept track of sin, if that's what God cared, if that's what God was marking consistently, no one could stand. But with you, there is forgiveness. The psalmist doesn't say, but you will give forgiveness. He says, with you, Where the Lord is, there forgiveness is. This is how God presents himself to his people. He says, this is who I am. This is the essence of my character. This is the, the very core of who I am. I am forgiveness. And so with the Lord, as we turn our eyes away from our own failing, not to ignore it, but rather to see something better, to see something that satisfies, to see something that fills the hole, the gap, that solves the problem, we see the cross. And when we look and we see the cross, what do we see? We look and see forgiveness. I want you to note a couple things about the forgiveness here. The first is that it's all comprehensive. The psalmist doesn't say, as long as it's not so bad, with God there is forgiveness. Or as long as this isn't your hundredth time making the same mistake, there is forgiveness. Or as long as it's not something that really hurts other people, there is forgiveness. It is a comprehensive statement that covers every character in your life. With God, there is forgiveness. And that forgiveness, secondly, is eternal. That Forgiveness is everlasting. There's nothing in the psalmist that says, but with you there is forgiveness as long as you now follow after me. For Forgiveness as long as you do the things that are right. There's forgiveness as long as you are faithful at going to church or reading your Bible or serving other people. It is a comprehensive, eternal statement. With you there is forgiveness. But it's also transformative. Notice the back end of that line. With you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Think about that. The psalmist here is overcome with sorrow over his sin, and yet he rejoices in the fact that there is forgiveness. With you, God, there is forgiveness so you might be feared. Now, most of us quickly realize this doesn't mean so that we would be scared. We're not talking about being scared of God. The fear of the Lord is that, that overarching word that captures the notion of service, of worship, of adoration, of love. Lord, that with you is forgiveness. Therefore, you are worshipped. Therefore, you are adored. Therefore, you are served. Therefore, you are my everything. That's what it means to be truly forgiven. So many people think that if forgiveness is what the Bible portrays it as, it's this open gift that God gives, that then there's no motivation to live a godly life. You might as well do whatever you want because you're forgiven, and therefore you can do whatever you kind of like, and the scriptures paint an entirely different picture. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The forgiveness of God leads to a transformed life. Therefore, we serve. Therefore, we love. Therefore, we worship the Lord our God because we have been forgiven. Because we are forgiven, therefore, the Lord is feared. And that fear plays itself out in the third stanza, verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. There's a waiting and there's a watching. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I like the repetition, actually, in the verse itself. It kind of captures that eagerness, that anticipation. Waiting and watching for the Lord. Now, what's he waiting and watching for? Not for forgiveness. He's already received that. What he's waiting and watching for is the fruit of forgiveness. Intimacy with the Lord. And that intimacy comes not by our striving, not by our working hard, not by our doing everything we can to do it right, but rather a waiting for the Lord, a watching for the Lord—not a passive, well, we'll just let the Lord do it—but an anticipation. The the watchman walking the the. The gates are walking the, the wall of the town, waiting desperately for the sunlight to come that would announce the security of the people. His job is to make sure that the town is protected from night raids and night things, and he's eagerly anticipating the coming of dawn so that then the people, the town, would be safe. Here, the one who experiences the forgiveness of the Lord is eagerly awaiting, eagerly leaning into the Lord, eagerly trusting the Lord. And finally, the last verses, seven and eight, shift in verses one through six. The author has been talking to God. Oh Lord, hear my cry. Oh Lord, you do this. Oh Lord, you do that. Now suddenly he shifts and speaks not to the Lord, but to everybody else. Because of my sorrow for sin, because of the freedom that has been found in God's forgiveness and in the fear in which I respond, because of the trust and the reliance that comes about by waiting on the Lord, now suddenly I can turn to everybody else and tell them the same story that has saved me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With the Lord there is plentiful redemption. With the Lord this is this is the testimony of the saved person. The saved person cannot but share with other people what God has done. He's saying here is the cup, the cup that is being poured into, overflowing so that it is drenching the table with God's blessings. So it is drenching the floor with God's blessing. That's what it means that there's plentiful there is an abundance, there is an overabundance of blessings from the Lord because of his redemption. That is what is awaits for you. Therefore, go and grab it. If you're a believer in this room at this time, in one way or another, you too have gone through this process. Perhaps you were too young to remember it. Perhaps it just kind of happened through the time you spent at church Perhaps there was a dramatic moment where you were caught in a rainstorm and a thunderstorm. If you're a believer in this room, you too have gone through this experience of the sorrow of sin, the forgiveness of the Lord that leads to trusting and waiting upon Him. I urge you to follow the full pattern of the song and become one of those people that proclaim the testimony of the Lord. Speak of God's blessings bountiful blessings in your life if you're not a follower. If after hearing this psalm, you sit and say, maybe I have never felt that sorrow for sin that has led to the forgiveness of the Lord, I beg you, come and speak with me. Come and speak with somebody. Don't let this moment pass you by. Because this moment is the moment of salvation for each and every one of us. Father in heaven, we do ask for your great blessing to fall upon us at this time that we would experience your salvation. That we would be taken by the grace that you give to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.